This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. Hello and welcome to Working Like Dogs on Pet Life Radio. Thank you for joining us today. We're your hosts. My name is Marcy Davis, and my co-host is my trusty service dog, Whistle. And we're thrilled to be with you today to talk about our favorite subject, working dogs and working animals. And today, we have a wonderful guest. Her name is Sue Belanda, or Susan Belanda, and she is a search and rescue dog trainer and handler, and she's author of an awesome new book called Soldiers in Fur and Feathers, The Animals That Served in World War One: Allied Forces. So come right back after these quick messages as we welcome Sue Belanda to the show. designerpetsweaters.com hand-knitted designer sweaters for your precious pup or cool cat beautiful couture patterns for your pets including custom knitted formal wear casual wear yachting and even sports themed many designer pet sweaters include feathered tammy hats top hats and a lot of sparkle each sweater includes leg loops front paw sleeves and leash opening visit designerpetsweaters.com to order your four-legged fashions today your pets will stay warm for the winter and be runway ready large or small we fit them all designerpetsweaters.com let's talk pets on petliferadio.com and welcome back to Working Like Dogs on Pet Life Radio. Today we're so excited to have author and search and rescue dog trainer and handler Sue Belanda with us. Hello, Sue, and welcome. Hi, thank you very much. Glad to be here. Yeah, well, we're so excited to hear all about your new book, which is really something that we don't hear about that much, our, our fur and feathers in World War One. Yes, it is a fascinating topic, and I think because it's actually this is the 100 year anniversary of World War 1. So it's been a long time and a lot of materials been, you know, buried or lost or whatever. So it's, it was a fascinating research project. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, well tell us how did you come up with the idea for the book? Well, I, you know, being a working dog person all of my life, I I've always been fascinated with things that they do and as you know in the past years, there's been focus on the dogs that served in Vietnam and the later wars, and of course, there's quite a bit of material about World War II, but I hadn't really found much on World War I, and as I researched it, I realized that World War I was unique in that it was a transitional war where armies were and militaries were switching from animal power to mechanization. So it was unusual in that respect in the role that the animals played and the wide, wide, wide variety of animals that were involved. Yeah. So that's what got me thinking, you know. Well, how did you begin to research all the different animals? 
Well, it took me years. It took me <laughs> I years. <bet>. <laughs> I had friends in uh, England and across the Europe looking for articles and newspaper clippings and books or anything that I could find with actual accounts of the animals in World War One, and I was very fortunate to get four of Richardson's books that he was actually the man who got the animals, dogs in particular, involved in World War One. He was a, a trainer from the 1800s, actually, and uh, was really critical in getting the use of dogs in World War One. and I managed to get a hold of all of his very rare four books. Wow, that was a score. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Gosh. Well, tell us, how many different types of animals participated in World War I? Well, if you want to count mascots, I think there's almost everything you can imagine. I have a picture in my book of a soldier with a golden eagle mascot. There were just about everything you could imagine people had as mascots. Now, I want to say that sometimes the mascots went to the front lines, but most of the times they stayed behind and offered what we know today as therapy animal services to the soldiers going and coming back from the front. So they played a very important, they were our first therapy animals and uh, played a very important part. I have a picture of some British soldiers in parade with their goat, their billy goat, right up there in the the parade with them, and that was their mascot. So when you say mascot, so do you mean like for the different companies of soldiers or battalions or their different groups? Yep. I think my personal feeling, I can't can't say this based on research, but I think there were more animals in World War I than any other since then. Well, Um, it sounds like, because we don't think of goats and all of those different types of animals as participating in war. Oh, I know. I mean, there was one case where, and this is rather comical, these soldiers, of course, food was scarce. And a group of soldiers went out to find some geese for Christmas dinner. And they got themselves a goose and a gander and became so attached that the whole group of soldiers that were involved in this all took a vote and decided they weren't going to eat them. They were going to keep them as mascots. And the goose and the gander traveled with them, you know, in the trenches with them. And and, uh, it was kind of funny. I mean, you know, and I can imagine what a sacrifice it was to give up a fresh goose dinner. (laughs) I was going to say, I'm sure that was a, a tough decision, but that just goes to show the level of suffering that they were encountering. And and I'm sure seeing an, another animal that's a beautiful animal with feathers and different different types of, of aspects of it that makes it such a beautiful creature would be hard to destroy when you're in such a desolate place. Because when yeah. I think of World War One, I, I do think of trenches. And I mean, I think of the movie War Horse, which, right. yeah, which certainly was talking about an animal. And I have to say, when I first saw the title of your book, that's what I thought of immediately were horses. Because as you said, it was transitional and there wasn't a lot of equipment and technology as right. we have today. Right. But they also used donkeys and mules and oxen and camels for transportation and dogs. Dogs pulled carts, you know, much as we know about the Bernice Mountain dogs and the dogs of Switzerland that pulled the milk carts. Well, they they employed them to carry ammunition and, and small, you know, supplies and food and stuff like that. So they there was a lot, a lot of, of animals that 
were both in the front lines and behind the lines that helped transporting food in the trenches. They would use burrows and small animals to carry the... I mean, imagine the amount of food they had to carry. It was no small task. And an animal could carry a lot more faster than people. Yeah. Yeah, it's mind-boggling to really think about it. How do you think the animals were selected for these jobs? Do you think it was just from the farms that were nearby, or do you think that they actually went out and, and selected? What do you think the process was for getting the animals into their jobs? Well, I know that a lot of the horses were shipped from the United States, and um, and you have to remember that the society itself used animals back in those times. I mean, if you go back to the 1800s in big cities like Chicago or New York City or any other city, it was not unusual to have a milk cow in a little batch in the backyard or chickens or goats or whatever. I mean, this is the way of life back then. So it was only natural that they would get these animals to use them in the front lines. They had the harnesses, the knowledge, how to use the equipment, how to use the animals, where today we wouldn't, you know, quite have as much of that knowledge on every individual soldier basis, if you know what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. So they had that back then. And so it was, I think, a lot easier and more logical to utilize them. Yeah, yeah. And I think they had to really utilize everything they had at their disposal, which we we don't have to do that as much today, but their resources, they really had to maximize all of their resources. Well, that's it, because they didn't have the infrastructure that we have today, the trains, the planes, the trucks, and, you know, the means of transporting goods. I mean, you, I forget what the number is, but I think if I recall correctly, and I could be wrong, it takes three people to support one troop in the field. A troop is a person. One person in the field requires at least three people behind the lines to support them. And that's today. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, don't, I can't imagine what that was back then. Right, right. And how that compares, I, I can't imagine. Yeah. yeah. Wow, wow. Yeah. Well, tell us about some of the, the jobs of the animals that had feathers. Well, that's interesting because the, there have been quite a few, mostly pigeons. They were used for messengers, you know, messages because they uh, they had telephone lines, but they were what we call today landlines. They were physical. So if a bomb or a bullet, even a bullet hit the wire, bingo, there went your communications. And every time the troops moved, they had to lay new wire. So it was very, very unreliable means of communication. Now, the airplanes did have wireless communication, but that only worked when the plane was operational. So when the plane was not operational, they had no means of communication. So even the airplanes of the day used pigeons to send messages. And the tanks had no communication whatsoever, so they relied on pigeons as well. So they would have these, and I have pictures in my book of these trucks that were portable pigeon lofts that the pigeons would learn to fly to and from. And it was really, really amazing that they learned this because these things were mobile. So it took them a couple days, but the pigeons learned to go back to that location. Well, I was going to say, how did the soldiers learn to work with the pigeons and with the other animals? Because I'm guessing there weren't any real training programs back then like we have now with the different... Well, yes, there were. Actually, 
as far back as the 1800s, the Germans had a very extensive war dog training facility, and that's actually where Richardson studied before the war. And they had a lot of military dogs trained. So when they had the Japanese-Russian War, which is in the early 1900s, Richardson trained the first ambulance dogs for that war. And uh, so this was actually perfected before World War One. Wow, that's amazing. And so what was an ambulance dog's job? Well, that would be what today's search and rescue dog does. They would go out in the field and they would find, and they did this without a handler with them. They would find a soldier. The soldier was unconscious and alive. They would take an object from the soldier and bring it back to the medics. And then the medics and the dog would lead the medics back to the soldier. If the soldier was conscious and able to walk, the dog would lead the soldier to the field hospital. And each dog had a pack on them that had supplies in it, uh, medical supplies, bandages, water, stuff like that, so that the soldier could then take care of himself and until uh, he could get to the hospital or somebody could get to him. That is so amazing. It is so common to see that now, as you said, with search and rescue, and we think about, especially after 9-11, and we think about the dogs that we saw on television, but to think about them doing that and having to be so independent, like you said, of not having a handler and to no communications, no cell phones, no easy ways to communicate with other handlers. I mean, that's just, it's so amazing. It is, it is, and they accomplished quite a bit. And one of the things that I found really that did my heart good, because I don't know if you realize, but I'm a certified animal behavior consultant, and uh, what did my heart good was that Richardson said in his books that you have to use all positive methods to train the dogs. So they were on to positive training methods, not maybe exactly what we do today, but they were on to positive training methods back then. And he said, you absolutely cannot train a dog to be reliable with any other method. Wow. Thank goodness. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Well, we are going to take just a quick break and hear some important messages from our sponsors, but come right back as we continue talking with Sue Belanda because we have more questions and lots more to talk about about her wonderful new book, Soldiers in Fur and Feathers. So come right back after these quick messages. Molly, here's your dinner. Zeus, that's not your food. Don't let that happen to your precious cat. Elevate your cat's eating experience with the Cat Tree Tray. The Cat Tree Tray keeps your cat's food off the floor and conveniently located on the cat tree. It's the perfect way to eat. It's a beautiful wrought iron tray that easily attaches to your cat tree and keeps dogs and other critters out of your cat's dish. A must for multi-pet households. There's a 6-inch tray for large bowls and a 4-inch tray for smaller bowls. Purchase your Cat Tree Tray today. Go right now to CatTreeTray.com. That's CatTreeTray.com. C-A-T-T-R-E-E-T-R-A-Y.com. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets. On Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com. 
Welcome back to Working Like Dogs on Pet Life Radio. And we're visiting today with author Sue Belanda. And we're talking about her really cool new book, Soldiers in Fur and Feathers. And I wanted to ask you, Sue, what was the most memorable story that you discovered in all of your research? Well, there were a lot of them. There were some really, really neat things. And uh, I think the one that I got the biggest kick out of was about a cat. Now, this cat was a mascot, and it was born in the trenches and stayed with his owner throughout, you know, the whole war. And there was, the owner had to, the Germans were doing something, and the owner had to sneak out to try to see what the Germans were doing, because, again, they didn't have satellite or, you know, the technology we had today. So they had to crawl out on their bellies and and spy. (laughs) Well, this, this cat went with the owner, and then... He was so involved sketching what the Germans were doing that he didn't hear two German soldiers approaching. And where he was, was he would have been spotted and shot. Well, at the appropriate moment, the cat jumped out of the hole he was hiding in. And the German soldiers thought that it was a person there. They heard the guy, I guess, moving around or something. But the cat jumped out, and the Germans laughed and said, oh, it was just a cat. And um, didn't shoot the guy. <laughs> didn't know he oh was Oh, my there. gosh. Oh. And it, it was just like how amazing this cat knew just when to jump out. And yeah. it's not something a cat would normally do. I mean, and I just yeah. thought that was so amazing, so amazing that this cat did that. So this cat was actually awarded medals and honors and everything for serving in the war. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, the cat deserved it. Oh, my gosh. Oh, yeah. That was, oh, yeah. Wow. That's so yeah. amazing. Oh, my goodness. And no, we don't think of our cats as doing that. No, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> but it, it, well, it was... It was just one of the amazing stories that I uncovered. Yeah, yeah. Well, I can only imagine how many of those that you read. My goodness. Well, and one of the things that I love about your book are all the photos, and there are over 70 rare photos in the book. How did you acquire those, Sue? Well, again, it was diligent searching. I got lucky. There was a museum that was going out of business, and I was able to purchase some of the files. It just collecting them here and there. Uh, some were from other books, but some of them were from articles and newspaper clippings that I was able to get a hold of. So it's a wide variety. And, you know, a lot of the pictures in the book are not maybe the clearest or best quality, but, you know, they're 100 years old. <laughs> yeah, well, I thought they were great quality considering how old they are. And that's what I was wondering is is how you were able to find them, much less acquire access to them. Well, like I said, I purchased a lot of them. Yeah, that was great. That was very fortuitous that you were able to do that. Like I said, it took me years. This is not something that happened overnight. Yeah, I cannot imagine how it could. No, I mean, clearly, there's been a lot of of thought and research into this. Is there one photo that's your favorite out of the group? Oh, that's tough. There's so many of them that I really like. That's hard to say. There's so (laughs) many of them. (laughs) I know. Well, I enjoyed seeing the Airedales. I mean, there was just, there were some really wonderful pictures. I also love the one of a wounded dog that was being cared for by a soldier, which I thought was, was really lovely to see that. But they're all just wonderful. 
Yeah, I mean, I guess jumping over the trenches and the uh, shell holes and everything like this, you know, those pictures were nice. Yeah, yeah, they're just incredible. And all the mascot photos, too, are great. (laughs) Yep, yep. Well, I can only imagine, I mean, I know what the animal-human bond is for me with my service dog, but I can't imagine what it must be in wartime and for people, for soldiers who are under such incredible stress and life-threatening experiences. What did you learn about that in your research? Well, I think the most important thing, because I've done research in other topics. One of my other books is about the pets of the Holocaust victims Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, what happened to them. And through that research, through this research, working in search and rescue and all the years I had working with dogs, the bond is consistent. The feeling like the police have towards their service dogs when one of them gets injured or killed in the line of duty or the soldiers have towards their dogs and search and rescue people have with theirs. It's just a very unique bond. It's different than the bond pet owners have. And I'm not Mm -hmm. saying it's more or less. It's different. Yeah. It's different to have life and death experiences with your animals than it is to just live with them. Mm -hmm. And it puts a different depth of feeling between them. And and I don't think if you've not experienced that you can't appreciate the grief that a policeman feels at the loss of his canine partner or a search and rescue partner. Yeah. Um, And that's what came through in, in all of my research is consistent through time, even though in those times the bond between animals and people was not scientifically officially recognized. People knew it. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. They felt it. Yeah, and how could they not under those circumstances and in those situations? Right. Yeah, yeah. Well, so what happened to most of the animals after the war? Well, a lot of them, there was actually... Uh, call them humane organizations that formed to help bring these animals home. Uh, many of the soldiers, especially going back to England, could not afford the quarantine or the fees that it took because these guys didn't make much at all. Right. And, uh, you know, the quarantine, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, back then was six months long. And they had organizations that brought these animals home, um, horses. Some of them were adopted. I have an article about the war horses that were left behind in Germany and how the Germans loved them and took care of them and adopted them. And, uh, you know, I think the animals back in World War One that after the war got better treatment than some of the wars since then. Wow, that's interesting that you say that. Yeah, because you wouldn't think that. I know that in Vietnam, it was a huge issue of animals being left behind, and that was just so tragic. And I would have thought it would have been the same for World War I. I don't think it was. I think that as many as could be saved that survived, there were big efforts by the societies to take care of them. I know I read about a couple of cases where animals were adopted that were left behind, were adopted. And actually used for publicity to raise money. They would be taken to parades and stuff like that, and people would really, really um, help out. It would just seem more animal-friendly to me anyway. Yeah, well, I'm so glad to hear you say that, because I wouldn't have thought that that would have been the case. But I guess when if there were so many types of animals 
that were participating in the war that, you know, they would have to to be dealing with that. And I guess I'm thinking again of the movie War Horse and what that that young man was all that he went through trying to be reunited with his horse. So that's encouraging to hear that because we don't want to think of the animals as suffering, you know, and and being in in those situations of danger and life and death. So it's it's good to think that there were some humane organizations. So tell us if someone wants to learn more about animals in war, what would you recommend that they research or read? Well, there's quite a few books out. Basically, you'd have to Google it, and books are coming out all the time. Depends which war they're interested in. There aren't too many on World War One, but, you know, there are more on World War Two and, you know, Korea and, and Vietnam and the desert wars. There's quite a bit of information, I imagine, because I haven't actually researched it myself. I'm on to other projects now. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> But there's good stuff out there. Yeah. Oh, good. Good. Well, and so what projects are you working on now, Sue? What can we look forward to next? Well, I'm actually working on a novel right now. I I switch back and forth from fiction to nonfiction. So there's nothing much to say because it's in its earliest stages. (laughs) Okay. Well, we'll be staying tuned and you'll have to come back and share that with us. Well, Well, you can always check my website. It's my name. Just Google my name or it's espalanda.com. And uh, I have an icon on the top of my page about uh, books, books I've written, books I recommend. And there's a lot of neat articles for dog and pet owners. It's not a, um, it's a professional web page, so there's no advertisements and stuff on it. Okay, awesome. And so tell us again, so it's S. Bulanda? S. S Bulanda, that's S-B as in boy, U-L-A-N-D-A dot com. Okay, awesome. Well, we will make sure and put that on our site so our listeners will know how to get more information about your work and how to contact you. Okay, that would be great. And uh, I appreciate it. Yeah, well, thank you so much for being with us. And I really encourage our listeners to check out Soldiers in Fur and Feathers. It's an awesome read. And not only does it have wonderful information and stories, it's very entertaining, but it also has some great rare photos of these incredible animals in World War One. So thank you so much, Sue. We really appreciate you being with us and for creating this wonderful work of, of literature that you've created so that people in the future will know about these incredible incredible animals and what they endured. Okay, thank you so much. And thank you, our listeners, for being with us. We're so glad you could be with us today, and we hope that you'll keep your emails coming. Whistle and I love to hear from you. And you can email us at marcy, M-A-R-C-I-E, at PetLifeRadio.com. And you can also follow Working Like Dogs on Facebook and Twitter and read our blog at WorkingLikeDogs.com. So take good care, and we look forward to you joining us again soon. Bye. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.